Go ahead and open them up to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, which is where we will be spending our time this morning. We're beginning a new series, and the Lord has got some things to show us out of this wonderful text of Scripture, so we hope that you will open your Bibles to Revelation, chapter 3. Well, last week we studied the final verses of Luke 21. We're going to be taking a little break from Luke for the next couple of months. In that passage that we studied last week, Jesus was closing out a dialogue that shed light on his second coming. He spoke of when he would return to rid the world once and for all of the sin that has plagued it for so long. And he challenged his disciples to prepare themselves for that return in some very specific ways, three ways in particular. He told them that they were to stay awake, that they were to work on being alert, keeping their eyes open to the dangers of sin in this world, uh, remaining alert to the work of God in and through them, and specifically by rejecting the drunkenness and the distractions of worldly things that consume our attention so much in this world. So we are to stay awake. Secondly, Jesus taught us that we're to live for the sake of eternity, rather than Fallen into the pattern of this world, which is just to take every moment as it comes and to just seize the moment for now with no regard to the future and no remembrance of the past. We are to live for eternity. We were built for eternity. God made us to worship Him forever. And so that should be reflected in the way we live each moment of our lives. So we should have our mind on His return. We should keep that in our thoughts and to be prepared for the time when Jesus is going to come back for His church. Thirdly, we are to continue to pray. Pray for strength that God would give us, that we might escape the things to come. Now, we know that since Jesus died on the cross and, and his church was born, there have been hardships in this world, especially for those who follow after Christ. And we know that as Christ prepares to return, as we get closer and closer to that day, that the tribulation and the trials that will come upon believers will increase all the more. And so we need to be in constant prayer that God will guard our hearts, that he will guard our minds, that he will keep us near to him, and that our fellow believers are able to stand with strength in the midst of the persecutions of this world. Now, as we examine the state of of humanity 2,000 years after this warning was given to us in, in Luke chapter 21, we see that we live in what could be described, now, right now, what could be described as a time of great spiritual sleep, The people in this world are largely ignoring the things of God. And they're not focused on eternity as they should be. Rather than living for the return of Christ, the the temporary things of this world have become a huge roadblock for us seeing the Lord and living for what is important. They have consumed our thoughts and our affections. This world is plagued by it. Because the people of our culture spend so very little time in real prayer, they're not equipped to handle the strains of this world and the challenge of living like pilgrims in a place that we don't really belong. We are made for heaven. We are not made for earth. And so to to be here and to survive the hardships we encounter here, we must be trusting in the greater strength that Christ can give to us. But this spiritual epidemic is not a new phenomenon. We we look around and we see that there's a great spiritual sleep around us. This is not a new thing or a recent development. See, there's a commonly held view amongst many people in the world that the church of Jesus peaked really early. That the only good church we know of is the church that we see in the book of Acts. And that at that time it was pure and it was, was unpolluted by the things of the world. And that viewpoint says that over the last 2,000 years, the church has gradually been on a decline. We're not as radical as we used to be. We don't, we don't give our hearts so wholeheartedly as the, those early believers did, that year by year we, we drift farther and farther from the Lord God. That's the mindset of very many people. But friends, it's just not accurate. That is not true. When we take a look at history and we see the state of the church over the ages, a more careful examination of history reveals more of like a wave-like pattern in which God's church experienced periods of great health when they are faithful to the Lord God for a time. And and God blesses them and draws them near to Him. And then eventually, as Christians experience these times of great faithfulness and, and nearness to God, eventually they begin to lose focus. Believers begin to drift from the Word, and that turning away from the Word of God leads them into a state of spiritual apathy or spiritual confusion the decline eventually begins to 
to seriously threaten the health of the church, which leads faithful followers within the church to become frustrated and discontent with the state of the bride of Christ. And so some of them, when they can no longer endure it anymore, bold individuals will stand up and will speak out and will begin to preach. And the call of reformation is bellowed to the church scattered throughout the world until change begins to take root and what does not belong in the church is purged out of the church. Faithfulness is rekindled and through reform, the church experiences historically time of expansion, times of influence, times of great peace. Now this has happened to various degrees in various areas of the church again and again across the ages. Tuesday, October 31st, 2017, is going to mark the 500th anniversary of one of the most significant times of Reformation God's church has ever seen. That is the day that we remember a certain German priest by the name of Martin Luther, who went and nailed a document containing 95 carefully thought out thesis. A thesis is basically a, a statement for discussion or a contention. He had some problems that he wanted the church to work out. And so these 95 theses were nailed to the door of All Saints Cathedral in Wittenberg. It was a document that would then quickly be shared with other scholars and other priests in different places and would really spark a, a wave of debate and conversation that led first to a great call for reform among those who worshipped under the umbrella of the Roman Catholic Church and then eventually it began to impact every corner of Christendom. And so starting this morning, and then carrying through the month of November, we're going to set apart five Sundays to consider the impact uh, that, of what has become known as the Protestant Reformation. Uh, if it's our prayer as pastors and elders here that seeing the bold witness of these church leaders 500 years ago who stood up boldly and, and proclaimed the truth to the people of God, seeing that will inspire us to turn an honest eye on ourselves that we might examine our own hearts and ask the question, what does God want to draw to our attention here and in the church today? What are we thinking or doing or saying? What are we clinging to? What are we believing that does not accord with the word of God and does not glorify him the way he intends to be glorified? Now, it did not take long for history to produce an example of that ebb and flow I was talking to you about. Yes, there is great uh, blessing in looking at the early church and seeing their passion for Christ, seeing their commitment to the gospel, uh, but it didn't take very long at all before even that early church began to struggle and drift from the true anchor of Scripture. And so if you've got your Bibles, uh, I want you to open up to Romans 3 if you're not there. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 19 this morning. Now this passage is a part of a series of letters that the Holy Spirit dictated to the Apostle John, who recorded uh, the visions that he saw, and that vision that was written down, or those visions, became the book of Revelation for us. And this first section of Revelation consists of seven letters that were written to seven different churches throughout the provinces, in which God gave them specific instruction directed at them, their needs, uh, acknowledging the good things that they were doing, instructing them on what they needed to do next. And we're going to be reading the seventh letter today, starting with verse 14 of Revelation 3. John writes, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy gold from me, refined by the fire, so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This last letter is to the church at a town called Laodicea. And this letter, in honesty, sounds distinctly different than the other six letters. Why? Why? Because the other six letters 
show the good and the bad, whereas this letter is distinctly critical. It only has negative things to say about the gathering of people in Laodicea that call themselves God's church. The angel that we read about in this passage of Scripture where he says, by the angel that is going out to the church in Laodicea, I write. This angel, the word for angel in the Greek is literally the word messenger. So it could mean a spiritual angelic creature, but it more likely is referring to either John the Apostle who wrote this down and was then charged with delivering it to Laodicea, or it refers to another servant in the church that John would send this letter by who would bring it to those people and help them to see the things that they needed to change. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. These are three titles that can only apply to one individual, and that one individual is Jesus. And so the one who is speaking these words is Jesus himself. He's communicating to this church that is important to him. And he's doing it through John. John is writing down the words of Jesus. Jesus is the head of his church, so it makes sense that he would speak to these people and dictate these letters to John for their benefit. His judgment is perfect, and his wisdom to the churches is vital to their well-being and their health. And so Jesus says to them, he says, I know your works. And when you think about that word works, we need to understand that he's not just speaking of the way they keep the laws or the ways that they're doing good deeds or if their obedience is, as if their obedience was all that really matters to God. That's not what he's trying to say here. He's not saying to the Laodiceans, let's take a look at your accomplishments and see how well you've walked the line. Let's see how much holiness you've achieved. Have you performed better than the other churches? What's your effort like? What grade would you get for holiness? That's not what Jesus is trying to do here. When he talks about their works, Jesus is referring to them because works, Jesus knows, are an outflowing of the heart. So whether we trust in the, in the Lord Jesus or not is going to show evidence in the way that we live out that trust in our day-to-day -day lives. So when Jesus draws attention to their works, he's doing so because Jesus is ultimately concerned with their heart. And the evidence of what goes on in their heart is, is shown by their deeds. He's speaking about what is important to him. And he's wanting to reveal the wrong things that have become important to the Laodiceans. Obedience that flows from a serious, loving commitment to the Lord is what really matters to Christ. And so Jesus sees the works of this church at Laodicea. And they are moderate. This church is neither hot nor cold. This is not a praise to them, by the way. He's not saying C+, plus, solid work, right? When he says moderate, he says it to them not as a praise, but as a condemnation. Their commitment to Christ is, is not a plate full of sizzling hot bacon. It's not a tall glass of refreshing orange juice. The Laodiceans' love for Jesus is like a bowl of unseasoned oatmeal that's been sitting on the counter for an hour and a half flavorless, unappealing. Nobody wants that. Do you recall our discussion a couple of weeks back where I spoke of the myth of the middle road, how so many people in life think that the greatest wisdom you can apply to life is just find the middle path. Don't be too extreme on any one side or the other. That's the greatest expression of wisdom for some people in this world. Now there is great wisdom in moderation. And the scripture will preach about it in the book of Proverbs. Uh, Jesus oftentimes urges people to be temperate in their actions. But it is not the highest good that we should all be aiming for, especially when it comes to loving the Lord. We cannot settle for moderation. God is not interested in getting a moderate commitment from you. In Luke 9, chapter 29 Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow after me. When he says, take up your cross, the people who heard that sermon understood he could only mean one thing. The cross was not just the sadness of their life or, or the bad conditions they had had to live through or their financial struggles or their sicknesses. The cross meant death. So when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow after me, he's saying, I'm urging you to be so radical in your commitment to me that you'd be willing to lay down your life, to say, God, here I am, take my life and use it for whatever you please. You died and rose for me, help me to now live for you and for your glory. 
The Apostle Paul said a similar thing in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see this, this radical following after Jesus is not something moderate. Romans 12.1, we talked about last week, urges the Christian to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which is holy and pleasing to him. These are not expressions of moderate commitment, friends. This is a truth that the church today desperately needs to hear as it struggles through a, a period in which thorough, life-changing commitment is getting more and more rare. Jesus says, would that you were either cold or hot. What that means, that's kind of a phrase. We kind of structure that phrase as a little confusing. Basically what he's saying is there, it would be better if you were either cold on this side or hot on this side. We can't just straddle and be in the middle here. One or the other. So what does it mean to be hot spiritually? What does it mean? It means to be zealous for the things of God. It means to have a heart that is fixed on Christ, that is passionate about Him, that is concerned with Him, that puts Him first. There's a phrase that is often overused, but it is appropriate to use for this time, to be on fire for Jesus. To live in such a way that Jesus is not just an idea that you think about occasionally, but to live in such a way that when you wake up, He's on your mind. And before you go to bed, He's on your mind. He's in your prayers. And you're thinking about Him. And your life is for Him. And you're excited to be a part of His kingdom and to do whatever you can to glorify Him. Now, if, if you are zealous for the Lord, if you are hot for the Lord, then it's going to show in the way that you live your life. And there are some examples here. If we were to have read the other five, uh, six letters to the other churches, there were some critical things that God had to say about each one of them. But there were also some very, very good things that He pointed out. He showed how in different areas they were showing a, a zealous love for the Lord. In Ephesus, they cared about scriptural truth. They needed, they needed their love to be rekindled again. They needed to get back to their earlier passion for Him. But they did care about spiritual truth. And they had a willingness to contend for it. They were willing to call out liars and people that intended to deceive the body of Christ. They were passionate about His truth. And so that was evidence of a hot love for the Lord. In Philadelphia, uh, God noted that the people in Philadelphia kept the word of God and refused to deny his name, despite the fact that there was heavy persecution beginning in Philadelphia. In Thyatira, uh, they practiced love and service to one another. They cared for each other, and they displayed an increasing faith that was growing through practice. And so they were, they were trying to be better disciples. It showed in the way that they were seeking God's instruction and they were listening diligently to the apostles that were leading them. And then in Sardis and Pergamum, there were two churches that had a lot of problems with them. But even in those two churches, uh, God points out that they had a few individuals, some faithful individuals who stayed firm to the Lord and would not relent in their pursuit of truth. One of them was a man named per, um, in Pergamum named Antipas. And he was even willing to give his life for the gospel. He died for the sake of Christ's testimony. So that's not an exhaustive list of what a, what a hot might look like in, in, in the life of a Christian, but it gives you a solid idea, doesn't it? And the church that, that gathered together in Laodicea did not possess any of these qualities that were worth noting. In contrast, what does it mean to be spiritually cold? You get a feel for it if you think about what happens to a body after it dies. The heat that represents life in that body quickly begins to fade away. And one who is cold to the Lord does not ex express or exhibit spiritual life to him. They are unloving towards the person of God. They are unloving to their neighbors. They care more about themselves than they do about God's church or his people. They are not willing to take action. They might be willing to say words, but there's not a real commitment that leads to life change. They don't want to go through any difficulties if that's what it takes to be faithful to the Lord God. They would rather skip it. That's what it means to be spiritually cold. Matthew 24, verse 12 says, And because of lawlessness, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So this is a very serious, serious danger for the church. It's interesting in, in noting in verse 15, Jesus says that it would be better if Laodicea were either hot or cold. Why would cold be better than warm? 
Isn't warm halfway to hot? Well, the truth of the matter is no. The middle ground is, is not a good place to be. Why? Because if you are cold, at least you know and acknowledge that you are far from the Lord God. A person who openly admits that they are not with the Lord, that they are not trusting in Him, at least can see the, the decision that they have made. Whereas someone who stands in the middle or tries to convinces themselves that they're doing just fine, they've got a lot of spiritual and religious things in their lives, but the, whole, the heart is not fixed on the Lord God. What seems like warmth to them is really a disguise for the coldness of their heart. So Jesus says it is better that you be rather cold or hot, anything but warm. So there are several ways that a Christian who is proclaiming Christ can grow lukewarm in their lives. First of all, they can become lukewarm in their love toward God and their affection toward Him. Those who at one time perhaps were very excited about Jesus, who learned something about Him, who heard about heaven and it, speak, it sparked their interest, but over time the, the real person of God was not appealing to them. They did not find joy in His truth. They, they were not interested in learning more about Him and so their affection for Him began to wane. Their walk with Christ is signified by the phrase, well, is this enough? What do I have to do? What's the, what's the least I have to do to be in compliance with God? That's not a heart of love. So when we, when we, when we fail to see the beauty and the power of this omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent God, our love will begin to grow cold for Him. When we allow especially our minds and our eyes to be distracted by lesser things that should not impress us as much, then our affection goes to a source that doesn't deserve it and our love for the true God of our lives becomes cold. Those who have grown cold in their love for God, you usually can tell that because they, they typically don't want to talk about God with anyone else. He, they might consider Him their God, but they don't act like they love Him by sharing that with other people. If you truly love someone, you're excited about it. I, I drive around and I see license plate, license plate frames. It says, uh, you know, uh, Bobby and Joe's grandma. You know, that's their, that's their identity in life. They love their grandkids so much they can't wait to tell you about their grandkids. They have such a passion for these little ones that they want to tell you all the great things they're doing, all the things that they're learning, what a great job mom and dad are doing raising them up. They love that child. They want to talk about that child. You might have stood in the line at the grocery store and, and heard all about some little kids you've never met before because that grandma or grandpa loved that kid so much. Do we have that kind of a love for the Lord which is so zealous, so hot that we want to share him with other people? Or could you know someone for two or three years and they would never even know that you're a believer because you simply don't talk about him? There isn't a love and passion for him that justifies you going out of your way to tell anyone about this God. So we need to be careful that we don't grow lukewarm in our love and our affection. Secondly, we don't want to grow lukewarm in our doctrine. Doctrine is what we believe about God. And what we believe about God is so incredibly important because what we believe about God will determine how we love Him and how we act in response to His commandments. And there are sadly too many people that know just enough about God to feel confident that when it comes to the end of this life, they're going to have a happy ending. They're going to have heaven instead of hell. But when it comes to the nature and character of this mighty creator, this three in one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who is in his very nature so different than us, they really don't have a desire to know more. It's too complicated. It's not something that's immediately accessible to me. So I'm just going to just going to count on the pastor to know what we need to know. When that, when that failure to seek after the, the knowledge of God with any kind of passion or love or fervency, when it begins to fade, then we become lukewarm in our doctrine. And our doctrine can then be vulnerable to heresy. We can begin to think things that are wrong about God because we never took the time to really consider what a scripture teaches us about the God that we love and serve. Thirdly, we, become, we can become lukewarm in our commitment to the Lord God. This goes hand in hand with love in some ways. But we see this often when someone is quick to seek the Lord out in times of desperation. When life is going off the rails, suddenly I need to go find God. Where's He at? I need His blessing. 
But they're inconsistent in that pursuit because as soon as the Lord blesses and gets them back to solid ground, suddenly they don't want to have anything to do with the Lord anymore. They, they don't have time for Him. He's not interesting anymore. The, the absolute opposite of that is true as well. There are some people that love the Lord so long as their life is blessed and the path is easy and the obstacles aren't so hard to climb over. They praise His name. But then as soon as things begin to become difficult, and, and hardship happens and God seeks to grow them and mature them through a challenge, suddenly they don't want to have anything to do with, with God. They don't want to pray with Him anymore. He's not looking out for me. He's not giving me what I believe I deserve. He's not being fair to me. So there's an inconsistency. I love God when He's good to me, but oh, when He's not good to me, I don't have the time of day for Him. When our pursuit of Christ is only consistent while other people are watching it, that indicates a, last, a, a lack of consistency. You know, when I'm, I'm okay to follow the Lord as long as there's 50 other Christians around me doing the same thing, but when I'm on my own, I don't pray, I don't read my Bible, I'm not seeking Him, I'm not seeking preaching or the, the, the music that expounds on His righteousness and His holiness, those things don't appeal to me. But as soon as somebody else comes around and is interested in Jesus, oh, I'll be interested in Jesus now too. There's an inconsistency there. Is God just the God of our Sunday or is He God of every day of our lives? Guard your heart against these kind of lukewarm tendencies that we slide into when our love for Him goes from hot to cold. Now each of these predicaments that I just described constitutes a crisis. A crisis that demands change. When our doctrine is lukewarm, when our commitment to Christ becomes lukewarm, when our love for Him is no longer passionate but is lukewarm, we need to see that for the danger that it is. And then we need to invite the Lord God to reform our hearts and to take us where we need to go. One of the most haunting things said of the church in Laodicea is in verse 17, where Jesus says, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable, poor and blind and naked. Do you see that there's a discrepancy here between the way the church of Laodicea judged themselves and the way that Jesus judged them? The lukewarm atmosphere caused them to think they were doing just fine. There wasn't the major persecutions that other churches were experiencing. They were financially stable. God's hand must surely be on us. And yet Jesus gives them the, 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 the sudden news, the shocking news, that, that they were far from Him. They were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked because they weren't being honest about their commitment to the Lord God. Reformation does not occur until the need to change is identified and confessed. We will stay on the same path that we're on until we realize honestly that we are on that wrong path and that by Christ's hand we must change our direction. The church at Laodicea was not facing the very real fact that they were in this desperate mode of reform, that they needed that badly. Their moderation was sickening to God who desired true discipleship from them. This letter from God by John was aimed at making them aware of their need to change so that they might, in obedient faith, repent of that lukewarm state before they were spit out of the mouth of God. In other words, God is saying, this is your chance to see what needs to change. And if it does not happen, then your true state will be revealed. The coldness of your heart will be revealed because I will reject you. I will push you away. As Matthew 7, 7 says, there are many who will come to him in the last days and say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, we have done so many great deeds in your name. And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, evildoer, because I never knew you. The Protestant Reformation was a historical movement that began within the Roman Catholic Church. And this period of refinement and transformation was sparked when a growing number of people within the church began to see the crisis of this lukewarm condition that they were living in that had plagued the church, and they began to say, we need to do something about this. Several factors contributed to that crisis becoming aware to people. The people at the time that the Reformation occurred did not have God's word available in the common languages that were spoken every day in the marketplace, in the, in the community, in the neighborhood. For hundreds of years, all of church services and, and all the spiritual academia that was conducted in the universities was done in the, the language of Latin. 
So if you were an English speaker, you had to learn a special language if you just wanted to read the Word of God. They didn't have Bibles in English. They didn't have Bibles in German or in French. They didn't have Bibles in the different languages that people were using at the time. They used the Latin language, and only about 15% probably of the people could read or understand Latin. So as you can imagine, much of people's interaction with God was done secondhand. They could not go to the Word and see the truth of who God was, so they had to depend on a priest, somebody else, to interpret it for them and to show them what the Word said, and hopefully that man told the truth. But many of them did not. The agendas of man, therefore, were often used to mislead a great many of the people in the church away from biblical truth. They were in error, and they were in need of reformation and correction, but most of the people didn't even know it. Faith in the church and in its leaders, rather than faith in the word of God itself, had made people vulnerable to false doctrines and man-made practices and traditions that were not found in the Bible, had been, had been added to the Bible, and were, were passed off as God's will for the people. Salvation, in fact, was largely being taught wrong to the people. They were told that salvation was a synergistic practice. And in other words, it had two parts to it. Jesus was very important to it. He played his part. He died on the cross for sins. But the church was teaching far and wide that you had to do your part in order to earn your salvation from Jesus Christ. The idea there was that not everybody is worthy of this salvation. And the way you prove your worth, you do good deeds. You give to the work of the church. You be an obedient boy or girl. And then we'll see if you really deserve this grace that God is offering. The truth of Scripture, friends, is that salvation comes to man and woman through grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We have no right to take part of the credit of salvation away from Jesus when He is the one that interrupts our sinfulness and saves us from it. So the church was in desperate need of reform. People needed to know that their salvation was all to God's glory and all for His credit. A period of time that historians refer to as the humanist movement kind of set the stage for the Reformation. It happened at the end of the 1400s. It was a, a response that came out of the Dark Ages. You might re recall the Dark Ages, a time of great illiteracy, widespread across most of the world, where, where much of literature and art was destroyed, and there was a great ignorance among the people of the world. There was great plague that swept through, and many people were, were dying of things that they didn't have any solutions for. Out of that, we, we, we remember the period of the Renaissance where there was a rekindling of interests in the knowledge that had been lost to the ages. And then the humanist movement began to take root where man began to believe and philosophers began to believe that humans could overcome their predicaments, their situations, their conditions through science and through reasoning and through, through thinking their problems through and, and applying their, the wisdom of, of past generations. Now, that was a secular movement by and large, but out of that movement came some spiritual men who said, we need to get back to some things that we have drifted far away from. And a man named uh, Erasmus Desiderius of uh, Rotterdam played an important role in this. Desiderius Erasmus went to the original languages that Scripture was written in at first. See, Scripture was not written in English. It was written in primarily two languages, the Old Testament in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, sometimes some portions in Aramaic. And so Erasmus felt if we want to be accurate in understanding God, we need to gather as many of these ancient texts that we have, and we need to put together accurate Greek and Hebrew um, versions of the Scripture so that people can go back to the original languages and make sure we're not making mistakes. Erasmus put great work and effort into this and blessed the church tremendously because it made it possible for other men who realized that not only did we need the, the, the Bible in the Greek and the original Hebrew, we needed it in our language too, in the language of the common man. And so they were able to bypass some of the, 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 the versions of the Bible that were not translated properly and go right back to the original texts in order to translate these new Bibles into English and into German and into, into the languages that people were really using at that time. Time. So the, these humanists set the stage for this Reformation work, and a return to God's Word 
first on a personal level as individuals desired to know what the scripture said and then on a more wide scale level as those individuals could not keep it to themselves and needed the church to know what the scripture was revealing and that the church had gotten off base on several areas of doctrine and theology. These things revealed the practices and the doctrines of church to be false in some areas. And so the church was teaching that, 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 that the, the church itself was equal to scripture. And that the Pope had power over God's word even. And those who studied the scripture said, that's not in here. That's not what the scripture says. And they wanted to tell the church, listen, our ultimate authority is not man. Our ultimate authority is Jesus Christ, the head of the church, who has given us his word to keep us from error. There was confusion about that two-part salvation that was being preached around the world. There was many inventions, such as the addition of this doctrine of purgatory. Which, if you have a two-part salvation, makes sense. Because if you have a two-part salvation, then your deeds become very, very important. And if you die without confessing those deeds through a priest, what do you do? You're not fit for heaven yet. And so the church had invented this thing called purgatory, a, a middle state where you had to go and pay for your sins, even though God had already died for them on the cross. And so the Lord had to reveal that this was a wrong doctrine, and he did, thro- did so through revealing the scripture to people in languages they could understand. They had instituted something called indulgences, where they said, well, if you have family members or loved one who are stuck in purgatory because they did some things they didn't confess, then if you come to the church and if you give us certain sums of money as a love offering to God, then the priests and the Pope can absolve the sins of your family members that are in purgatory and get them into heaven earlier. So people who had a love for aunt or grandma or mom or dad who died wanted them to not suffer and they would come to the church and give large sums of money. How do we think the great basilicas in in the Vatican and these great structures were built? They were built on the sales of these so-called indulgences. And many people began to see the discrepancy. Well, if the Pope has the power to absolve people of their sins, why doesn't he just do that? Why does he require a gift of money? And and people began to question and, and think through these doctrines that had no place in Scripture. They also challenged the veneration of saints and the exaltation of relics, different holy artifacts that that became idols to the church. So there was some great work that was done during this time. And a deep conviction and commitment to returning to the word was at, at the foundation of it all. But this could not happen until those within the church could honestly identify and confess their need to change and to reform. Consider for a moment, because of the personal nature of identifying our error and confessing our need to change our errors, reformation takes courage, doesn't it? It takes bravery to be humble enough to say, we have been doing things wrong for some time now, and we cannot continue in the direction we're going. That takes bravery. About two weeks ago, uh, a company that uh, is pretty local to here, down in Salinas, called Man Packing. They distribute vegetables and salad mixes and things of that nature around the West Coast uh, into six different states. They discovered, through their routine testing, a strain of listeria, a small sample of listeria, a very serious illness, a virus, that was in some of their broccoli. Now, they had a very difficult choice to make. This is their testing. This is their observation. They could say nothing and just take a chance on whether that the millions of dollars worth of groceries they had just sent out were contaminated or whether they were healthy, or they could recall those vegetables and take a huge financial loss. And to the credit of man-packing, they decided to go forward and to tell the, the, the population and to tell the stores that they had delivered to that we want you to recall all the vegetables that we have sent back in these categories of food, send it all back to us, and we will refund your money because there's a possibility that those vegetables have been contaminated. How difficult a choice would that have been for a company that exists first and foremost to make money, right? They are making a conscious decision to take a serious financial setback by being honest about this problem. But they were willing to do it because the risks outweighed by far the benefit of saying nothing and hoping it all worked out well. In America today, there's roughly 1,600 cases of listeria reported each year, and about 260 of those 1,600 people will die. 
If you're very healthy, you can probably survive it, but the elderly are very vulnerable, children are very vulnerable to listeria, and those who have compromised immune systems. And the man packing company realized that it was too great of a risk to human life, which meant more than the money they would lose if they made this recall. And the government probably made them do it too, I don't know for sure. <laughs> But in some ways, this illustrates the difficulty of confessing our own sin, doesn't it? So often, we want to preserve a facade of holiness. We want to convince our neighbors, our brothers and sisters, that we've got our act together. And when God interrupts that charade and reveals to us, you've got a lot more growing to do, we would much rather keep it quiet and pretend like everything is okay and do the difficult work of changing what needs to change and if necessary sharing that truth with somebody else so they can help you and pray for you and encourage you and keep you accountable. Reformation takes serious courage, friends. I, I pray that the courage of the men we're going to be studying in the next few weeks will help to inspire a courage in us that we're willing to say, you know what, th there's a part of me that I know needs to change. I'm going to reach out to my brother or sister. I'm going to ask for prayer. I'm going to share this in my focus group. I'm going to share this with my wife or my husband. I want to, I want to get better at this. See, the church at Laodicea was in great danger, and so Jesus gives them instruction there in those last couple of verses, and he counsels them to buy from him, and he lists three different things that we're going to discuss in just a moment. Now, that might be confusing to you. You might think, why is he wanting us to buy things from him? Is this like indulgences? Do we have like spiritual monopoly money somehow in a spiritual bank that we got to use to pay off for these? How am I going to buy things from God? Think about... Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Look at this passage of Scripture. The, the prophet Isaiah is recording the words of God, and he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. God knows we are spiritually bankrupt. Jesus is aware of this condition in us. And so when he says, I urge you, come and buy from me these things that are essential to you, he is saying to that not to discourage us, but to encourage us that he's going to foot the bill. He is willing to give for us the things that we cannot afford, the things that we cannot attain on our own, the things that we are not wise enough to understand, he is going to bring to us if we would simply come in humility and ask for them. And so he tells us, here in, in, in these last couple of verses of the passage we're studying today, he tells us that there are three parts to the remedy of a lukewarm heart. First of all, buy gold that is refined by the fire so that you can be rich. Buy gold that is refined. That word refined is, is important to understand. Gold increases in value and worth the more pure it is. You don't want to have gold that's got little bits of sediment or other alloys mixed in with it. And so I've shared with you before how a jeweler who is proficient at his craft will heat up gold to an incredibly high degree to the point where it will melt down and become liquid. And gold, one of the great things about gold is it's incredibly dense and heavy. And so gold will then sink to the bottom of that edifice that's being heated up. And everything else that's in that gold, which is lighter, will then float to the surface. All the little pieces of rock and dirt, all the little pieces of, of metal that were somehow mixed in with that gold, will then rise to the top, and a skillful artisan can scrape them off, leaving only pure gold behind. And this process has to be done several times to achieve optimum levels of purity. That's why if you go to the jewelry store today, you can see 18 karat gold and 14 karat gold and 10 karat gold because it signifies how much of this process the gold has gone through to become ultimately pure. And so Jesus is telling us that we need to come and buy gold that is refined by him. He's talking about reformation here. He's talking about purging us of the impurities that exist in us. And it's only something that we can get from who? From him. There are other metaphors in Scripture that are similar to this one. We are told that a tree that does not bear fruit for God, meaning an individual who has parts of his life where, where the Lord is not included or he's not seeing, seeing faithful uh, products of, of love and truth, that those branches need to be trimmed away. They need to be cut off because those branches that don't bear truth, 
or don't bear good fruit are sucking up the nutrients of the tree and making it less useful. So cutting those branches off make the tree more vibrant, more vital, and more productive for, for God. We're told another metaphor where there are, there's a field full of wheat into which tares, a type of weed that looks just like wheat, has been planted. And through the process of threshing out the wheat, they are able to separate what is not really wheat from what is truly wheat. So there is no more counterfeit among the truth. These processes are what God uses to make us more like Christ. And this is the reformation that we're speaking of this morning. Now those advantages that, uh, that Jesus speaks about, he, he refers to them as riches here. Because Laodicea was a city of great wealth and prosperity. Laodicea was a place where commerce was, was, was going strong. They had a, a very strong wool industry. They were famous, in, in fact, for their black wool, with which great fine textiles were made from the, 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 the hair of the sheep that they raised there. They, they had a, a good medical industry in which they would create remedies for common problems. In fact, there's records of a, a, particular, a particular brand of salve, which is like a, an ointment that was produced in Laodicea to help people who were having problems with their vision to keep them from going blind. So the, the Laodiceans were focused on the external. They were focused on material goods. And he's saying, listen, the kind of wealth you need is not the kind of wealth you put into a bank. You need the spiritual wealth that can only come from my refining power. So buy from me for free on my tab. Buy from me the gold that is refined in the fire and is worth seeking after. Secondly, he tells them to buy white garments so they could clothe themselves in the shame of their nakedness. White, of course, symbolizes purity. And so what he's, he's pointing out here is that there is, there is a need for them to realize their sin is serious and to be shamed, ashamed of their sin. Not that they might be condemned by it forever, because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but so that they might turn those things over to the Lord and allow God to wash them pure and clean. Though they claimed Christ, the lukewarm believers in Laodicea, were not living righteously, and they needed the righteousness of God to overtake their sin. We cannot help probably, but think about the Garden of Eden there where Adam and Eve commit sin against God for the first time and they can't bear to be in the presence of their maker without some kind of a covering. So they make clothes for themselves because they're trying to hide their sin. The Apostle Paul in, in two separate epistles, two different letters in the New Testament, describes a revolution in the heart of people who surrender to the Lord. You can find this in Colossians 3 and also in Ephesians 4. So if you turn in your Bibles real quick to Ephesians 4, I want to read through a portion of this scripture where Paul describes to us the way that Jesus specifically covers our sin and makes, makes something that used to be pure and defiled, uh, makes it radiant and beautiful again. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 says, Now this is I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Two focuses to point out there. You see how much emphasis is put on what a person believes, what they think, and what is on their mind, and how you can't divorce that from what is in their heart. We must know God for who He really is, and we must seek to love the Lord God for who He really is. Heart and mind working in one accord. Verse 19, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learn Christ. He's saying you need to be different from the world that you live in. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The word therefore put off literally means to disrobe, to get rid of your old person, to get rid of the sinfulness that used to define you, and then to do something different. Verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirits of your mind to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you see what God is showing us can be done in one who has faith in Christ? That our wretchedness can be in totally covered, not by our own righteousness or not by a new way of doing things ourselves, but by the righteousness of Christ, which he credits to us. 
It's an alien righteousness that now becomes our righteousness because God is graciously giving it to us, not that we've earned it, but giving it to us so that we can walk in a way that we are glorifying to him. Rather than seeing reform as a way to hide our sin, let us learn to rejoice in reform, understanding that when we confess our sin to the Lord Jesus and trust in him, he clothes us with a righteousness that is not our own. He's not hiding our sin. He's paying for it in full. And in doing so, he overcomes it completely. The third thing that Jesus urges the Laodiceans to do is to buy salve with which to anoint their eyes so that they may see. He wants them to be able to understand the struggles that they are in and to realize that they came from their own decisions. And so this, this instruction that Jesus gives to them is, is hopefully going to be eye-opening. Hopefully it's going to reveal truth to them in such a way that their hearts are broken and, and it cuts right to the bone and they realize we cannot continue in this lukewarm manner that we've been living in for so long. A healing needs to take place. A refinement of sorts by which the power of the gospel is allowed to have its true impact on the heart of a disciple. And the Reformation was not just a corporate exercise. It was not just something that affected the church as an organization. It did affect the church, but it began in the hearts of individuals. It, it began with certain men and women who were willing to look honestly at themselves and say, I need to live like Christ desires me to live. Martin Luther, next week, is, is going to be the man whose life we examine. Paul is going to come and preach and share with us the life of this amazing man who, who championed the truth about salvation and showed us that salvation is strictly by the power of Jesus. It's not by the work of man whatsoever. That we cannot share glory with him because he is the one who comes and radically saves us by grace. Men like William Tyndale felt this urge to reform. He is the one that... that through threat of death, went to the original texts of Scripture and translated from the Greek and the Hebrew into the English so that every individual in England could know the Scripture and read it for themselves and become familiar with it and live by it. We're going to learn about John Calvin on the third month. By the way, Pastor Chris is going to be preaching about William Tyndale for us. And you want to know about this guy. He's an amazing figure in church history. John Calvin is going to teach us the importance of having right doctrine that coincides with each other, that fits together well. He, he really helped us to see the benefit of systematic theology and being responsible for the things that we believe so that we can live out a life that truly reflects glory to him. And John Knox is going to teach us in the final week of our series about the importance of preaching the truth with conviction and with power. He showed the courage that we must have in continually reforming our hearts to match the, the picture that Scripture gives to us of what a believer's life should look like. Is the Reformation over? We're going to mark its 500th anniversary in just a couple of days, but does that mean it's long behind us? No. Reformation is in many ways sanctification. It is the process by which we become more like Jesus Christ day in and day out. It is beautiful for the church to go through this reformation because it is how God changes us to make us more like Him. And so it is our hope and prayer that as we enter into this discussion and, and examination of these reformers that we would turn the lens upon ourselves and that we would allow the Lord God boldly to use us and to shape us and to make us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ, to the glory of his great name. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer and thank the Lord for his word.